My name's Pete, and I'm here representing the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. What brought us to the BioBlitz today is that we are all about connecting people with nature and our vision of ending extinction. So we're here to educate people and interact with them and get them charged up about ending extinction. Biodiversity is extremely important to us and our mission because, as you probably know, wildlife is endangered in various ecosystems all over the world. So for people to understand and appreciate the biodiversity and wide range of wildlife and habitats helps them to become passionate about saving us and joining us in our fight to save all of that biodiversity. National parks are extremely important in connecting people to nature, to wildlife, to wild places, so that they will want to preserve those for themselves and for future generations. My name is Reina. I'm one of the interns at Cabrillo. Uh, what brought me to the BioBlitz is that I'm part of the social media team. I'd like to spread the word about conservation and protecting wildlife. Um, I love biodiversity. I am a, neat, I am a freak of nature. Um, I, uh, I believe that it's important that um, the community and everyone that comes my way knows and to respect and protect wildlife and nature because um, it's beautiful and it's something that should not go away for generations to come to see and, and uh, be inspired to um, go on with this. And my favorite national park is Cabrillo National Monument because it has um, really friendly, great people, and this is just an awesome place to work at, and I'm very grateful for it. Welcome to Pelicanus. Pelicanus is a show about the good news happening in the conservation world. We focus on the people and the organizations doing the work necessary to save endangered species and protect open spaces. And we tell their inspiring stories to show that we can find optimism through science. This episode is about a nationwide event that the National Park Service put on called BioBlitz. First, we're going to meet our guests. Keith Lombardo, I'm Chief of Natural Resources at Cabrillo National Monument. I'm Alex Warnicke, and I'm the Science Program Coordinator at Cabrillo National Monument. Now, Keith and Alex and everyone else that works and volunteers at Cabrillo took part in this event this last May. But Cabrillo is actually a really small park. 160-acre parcel of land that became a park in 1913, and it's primarily known for its lighthouse and for commemorating Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo landing in what is now the United States. If it's such a small park, how much biological research or management can really be done? You'd think that anything that could have been done has been done already. And that's what I thought when I came here is like there's we do like just the basics. There's so much more you can do if you just dig in and like get that lens and drill down and try to figure out like, all right, well, what's the connection between agaves and pollinators? No one's ever looked at that, but, you know, looking for diversity in the smallest little crevices of the tide pool and people get this feeling of like, yes, there's lots, there's still so much to explore. And just because it's not a sequoia tree or it's not a bison that's going to walk past you in a big national park, there's still things out there that are discoverable and interesting and that nobody's really thinking about right now. 
Frio National Monument is this awesome little pocket of San Diego. It makes it really easy to explore the natural world in an urban setting. But in this episode, we're talking BioBlitz. What is that? A BioBlitz is a concentrated effort to discover as many species of flora and fauna in a 24-hour period. Uh, and this helps us give an idea of the biodiversity of a given area. But what does that even mean, or how does that help, especially within a large organization like the National Park Service? Um, so this year is the centennial of the Park Service, and with uh, 100 years, um, they wanted to do a bio-blitz across the nation. So 119 Park Service units are actually involved in this effort from May 16th to May 22nd. And we talk a lot about within the Park Service um, the next 100 years and what does that look like. Uh, so it's kind of cool to get a, a, a snapshot, a glimpse of biodiversity, um, of what it looks like right now in the centennial. And so we can compare it as we uh, have a lot of different changes going on um, through global stressors, climate change, of what, what do we think it's going to look like in the next 100 years. Um, we won't be around for it, but for the next uh, Centennial BioBlitz, um, what, what does biodiversity look like? How has it changed within the park? So it's cool to have that, that snapshot, essentially, of what biodiversity looks like now across our nation. So she called this a snapshot. It acts as a little bit of a window into the diversity of the park. And Alex is going to explain this a little bit further. So we bring citizens out from the community, everyday people, the public, students, um, to get excited about science. Uh, and they're basically going through a given area and recording observations of plants, animals, flora, fauna, all of that. Um, and they could make notes about their observations. Uh, we use for our bio blitzes, um, a, a, a program called iNaturalist. Um, and with iNaturalist, we have the power of uh, the mobile device, right? So we can um, basically take a picture, take some notes, it geo-references, geolocates, and time dates uh, all the observations, and they go into a larger database. Um, and then that da database is available to anyone who wants to see the data. Uh, the observations are checked by researchers who are also using the same platform. Um, so it's all research-grade observations, and we can tell a lot of different kinds of stories. So this technique, along with this amazing innovative technology, have huge implications for ecological conservation, as well as getting the community involved in these projects. And, and you know, it's interesting, it's historically, bioblitzes were used more as a scientific tool to document diversity within a park to give yourself a baseline of a certain taxa or maybe many taxa within an area. And now I think it's more shifted as a citizen science event, an area to recruit people into the park, introduce them to their resources, introduce them to technology they can use at the park or in their own backyard uh, to explore biodiversity. So for me, it's more now of an outreach tool than it is a scientific tool, although we do get great information from BioBlitzes. But for me, the real selling point now is just engaging the community and getting them to appreciate their parks and appreciate the diversity that's within their parks. We're, we're in an era of, of changing systems, and whether it be due to natural fluctuations, climate change, a little of both, documenting this year after year and seeing the changes in our taxa is going to be critical. And 50 years from now, someone's going to, somebody's going to look back at this and be like, this is a great data set. Look what was here. Look what they documented. Look what's moved in since then. Look what's moved out. Uh, you know, that's that's the real power in ecological data is that it's it's consistent and it's over, over long periods of time.
And I think um, with these bio blitzes, especially there's power in numbers. Um, so you're bringing out hundreds and hundreds of people to the park. Um, and so you, you're going to find things that you might not normally find just because of the sheer mass of people that you have out here. For an event like this, basically it's setting loose experts and letting them go to the areas where they know they're going to find uh, the maximum amount of diversity. So they're going to use the experts to find the exact type of organisms that they study. And this isn't only to get the best findings, but it's also to create a partnership between the local researchers and the park. Um, because we have such, not just an uh, extreme diversity of animals, but also extreme diversity of scientists in San Diego, we kind of wanted to cover all of the bases. We, wanted, we, we invited everyone, not thinking that they would all say yes, and then they all said yes, yay. Um, and so we're, we, we kind of just want to um, allow the scientists a, a chance to come explore this area that they might not normally come out to. Um, so we have everything from people doing herps, vegetation, intertidal, birds. We, we basically have the entire gamut, um, which would be super cool. So we can get a large amount of species diversity and also, as Keith said, uh, provide a platform of collaboration with a lot of these local scientists. Because we have tons of amazing scientists right here um, in San Diego County. One of the more unique habitats at Cabrillo is the intertidal habitat, which also presents its own challenges to study. So yeah, we've already conducted the intertidal portion of the BioBlitz, and the concern was that because the low tide is at 4.30 in the morning, uh, so we were, at, we were out in March and already collected a lot of data, and you can already see that in iNaturalist. Uh, as Alex already mentioned, you know, we, we saw some species that we typically don't see and when we conduct our annual monitoring, so it was really beneficial. But we're still planning to go out because now, again, it's a different season. There's definitely different organisms in the intertidal. And so this time we'll be taking out a team of experts who are quite familiar with the intertidal and how to work this area even in the dark. Uh, and, you know, as part of the 24 hours, I think this is really neat that it falls in the middle of the night. Um, so, you know, again, it gets, it's a narrow, narrow window of low tides that you have to work with and you kind of work with the tides. And in this case, we have a 430 window to work with. Uh, and it's a great excuse to you know be here all night and and get out there and explore. In the northwest, you know, their their low their low ties they work are in the, usually in the middle of the night. So this is sort of par for the course for folks who work in other parts of the country. We're fortunate here in Southern California. We always have it easy, right? It's always beautiful. It's always sixty five degrees, <laughs> and our low tides are always at two thirty in the afternoon. But here's a you know neat chance to be out. You know, so what's neat about it again is that you know. Our monitoring occurs during the middle of the day from November to April. Here's a chance to get an off-season glimpse of what we have in the inner tidal um, and or maybe organisms, organisms that are more active uh, in the evening. So it'll be a neat chance for park staff and other experts to you know, get a, some baseline of, of what may occur outside of our monitoring. With all the moving parts and logistics that go into a large event like this, what goals have they set for themselves? Certainly the California gnatcatcher, a fairly listed species, would be, it'd be great just to have confirmation that they're still here, right? So anytime we get a data point from, you know, one of our staff or interns or volunteers saying, yep, I heard them. To me, that's a good thing as a manager to know they're, they're here. Because we have, we, while we monitor sort of informally, we don't have a, a formal monitoring program in-house. I know USGS has their own. But still, it'd be great to have, you know, it's basically a random search. You're going out on a, on a certain random day in May, and where will your experts hear this bird in the field? So, you know, it's sort of like that. That would be very important to me to hear that. 
uh, you know, and just, again, setting loose that many experts, I, they're going to find something that we never knew we had. And maybe it's not listed, but it's still, if, if I don't know it's in the park and my staff doesn't know it's in the park, then we're not managing for it, essentially. Or maybe the number of observations, you know, like the orange third of whiptail is a, a good example. Is that I, I'm certain it'll be captured at some point, you know, in, in, in the database, but maybe the, the number of observations would be indicative of how well that species is doing. And that's of interest because they respond well to, to pristine native habitat. So in our, our long-term monitoring, uh, herpetological monitoring, there's far more orange sort of whiptails here in the park than there are on the adjacent navy lands, and we attribute that to having a more intact native uh, community. So, you know, again, something like that. So I have more observations of a certain species will tell us, you know, about maybe which parts of the park are healthier, where to find these species if we need to go look for them. So I think there's a lot of good information that can come out of this. One of the advantages of having a 24-hour event like this is being able to document the elusive nocturnal world. So it's actually an interesting, I wanted to add another portion to the unique methodology that we might be using um, in terms of camera traps. Um, the Natural History Museum's bat biologist, Stu Stokes, will be coming out. Um, so we can't just go catch bats. So the way that we... Um, basically take observations as we have anabats and so we know which bats are here and we can take pictures of the bat itself and just be like oh we found this we heard this echolocation call um, on our anabats and that still counts for iNaturalist so it's a kind of an interesting you don't necessarily have have the animal like in your hand to have the observation that they're here in the park mm -hmm. um, so I'm assuming that she'll do a similar uh, sweep with the camera traps as well and I think the nocturnal surveys will be interesting. You know, it's, the parks closes at 5 p.m. every day, and, you know, I've spent some time here after hours and found, you know, some things. I know that, I know, you know, great horned owls are here, and we have a problem with raccoons and possums, but, you know, having all that documented will be a great management tool because we have no surveys, no formal records of anything that that's found here nocturnally. So that alone will be, that will probably be one of the biggest contributions to the natural resource database is documenting what's, what's here at night. Technology isn't always the easiest to use in the field. How exactly does it work in documented biodiversity? Uh, so oftentimes, not normal science, we use data sheets um, to collect all this data. But when you're talking about large scale observations, that becomes uh, inefficient. So it's cool that we can use the technology that is now available to us through the app iNaturalist. Um, and basically you can sign up um, using any Android or Apple device. Um, and it's basically observations at the touch of a button. And so people signed up, they then uh, take pictures of different organisms. I think what's also really powerful about the app is that you could just take a photo of something, have no idea what it is, upload it to the database, and because you're interacting with a virtual network of experts, you can rely on this, this virtual community to help you identify the species correctly. So there's a lot of power in that, in that you're getting actually really pretty good data, and you're, you, know, you have this online community of teachers to, to really train a cadre of citizen scientists. And then the true power of it is that you can see it all on a larger scale, so almost as if you're looking at Google Maps. Um, you can see all the observations spread across a given area, a given point of time. 
Um, and so from there, you can then uh, look at that data and manipulate it in different ways. So the, the citizens or the people coming out uh, to do these observations can see, oh, this is what species diversity is. This is how many species we have in the park, how many individuals of each species. Um, and we can start to give them a better visual representation of what diversity looks like um, on a larger scale. I would also say um, that it's pretty powerful in the fact that with uh, the next generation of stewards, we are not going to disconnect them from their mobile devices. Um, so we need to look for ways where we can integrate technology and natural observation um, so that we can reach these kids on their level. I would rather have uh, the students out there with their iPhones but actually using them for science right. other than texting their friends or um, what have you. And so it allows us to have this, this tight coupling of technology um, and the natural world. I think the power of iNaturalist as well and using the mobile devices is it gets it gives kids something to do. It gets them a chance to look closer because they have to look closer. Um, oftentimes we have people come to the park and they're like, I see nothing. When in fact we have these crazy plant communities out here. We have all these awesome organisms, but you have to look closer in order to see them. And so iNaturalist um, and these bio blitzes allows people to kind of decipher out the data. They can kind of, they look at each plant individually because they're looking for a different species or, um, so it kind of, I think it allows people something to do um, in a productive way. <laughs> Although Cabrillo is a really small park, it sits in San Diego County, which is something called a biodiversity hotspot. Yeah, well, you so said San Diego County is considered the most biodiverse county in the United States. One, it's because it's so large, but two, it's really because we have ocean mountains and desert all within the county so it spans a really diverse set of ecosystems and you know going along with that is we have some of the most threatened species as well we have some heaviest development in one of the hottest uh, areas for biodiversity basically spells doom for many of those species uh, many of which are living on the edge of their range as it is so you know coupling that east or west to east transition of coast to mountains to desert we're also on this north to south gradient of being at the northern edge of um, uh, predominantly Baja-type vegetation. So many of the species found here are found more commonly in Baja, Mexico. So the species you find here are at the edge of their range uh, in that aspect, but they're also at the southern end of uh, Southern California coastal sage-grove vegetation. So while we get a lot of overlap between these two distinct floristic communities, uh, many of these species are struggling to uh, maintain their foothold in, in this area. So coupling all those dynamics together, you, you get these really unique assemblages which promote biodiversity but also uh, lead to pretty rapid extinction when they're, when they're put under pressure. On a personal level, I, I think the way I manage is, is you know, again, going back to the, the concept of we're never going to, we have a baseline, a reference condition of, you know, pre-Columbian pristine ecosystems, right? And we're always trying to get there, but we never quite will. But what I try to manage for is maximizing biodiversity, simply be native biodiversity, simply because as systems evolve, whether it's, again, natural or anthropogenically driven, having a maximum amount of, of species gives our, our native systems the best chance to adapt to whatever is coming their way, whether it be new species moving in, new climate regimes, new 
ecological stressors, if you have this full, fuller suite of species available, you're more likely to have one or two of those species adapt well and, and create a more stable uh, native ecosystem going forward. So for me, that's the number one reason to protect what we have is because we don't know what's gonna, what we're going to need in the future to, to keep our system stable. So for me, that's the bottom line of why we need to protect biodiversity. And, and doing a bioblitz like this, again, gives you this snapshot. This is what we have right now. And yeah, some of the data is important to me right now in the next year as I manage the park. But again, doing this long term, someone 50 years from now is going to really appreciate having this snapshot so that they can look back and see what was important and maybe make a, a more relevant decision uh, in 50 years from now. This event happened this last May. We caught up with Alex and Keith again in June to see how it all went. But first, let's hear from a volunteer from a local organization that was able to come out and enjoy the BioBlitz and share their message as well. My name is Ariel Cutter and I am an in education intern at San Diego Coast Keeper, a local nonprofit that's dedicated to keeping San Diego's waterways fishable, swimmable, and drinkable. And what brought us to BioBlitz was the chance to was the chance to advertise our free education programs and biodiversity is incorporated in them because if we are protecting the waterways of San Diego, we are protecting the biodiversity and we want to teach children, adults, people of all ages to clean up, um, clean up after themselves, reduce pollution. And um, my personal favorite national park would be all of them. <laughs> Can't really choose a favorite. <laughs> But the favorite thing about national parks is that they're there and that you can explore biodiversity and you can learn so much. There's so many national parks and there's marine protected areas, which is what Coast Keeper is uh, really concerned about, which are like national parks, but on the ocean. And you can go kayaking and other activities and tide pooling to just look at all the biodiversity around you. Now back to Keith and Alex to hear about how the BioBlitz went. I would say it was tremendously successful. I thought the scientific effort was fantastic. We had a lot of collaborators, a lot of willing volunteers, and we collected a lot of data, a lot of new finds, but I think most impressive was that we were third overall in the National Park Service in number of species counted in number of observations, so a really impressive effort for a small park. So through our BioBlitz in summer, we had 1,741 observations, 444 species were captured, 82 observers came out, and then we had 96 people uh, identifying the observations after they were taken, so that they were double-checked. And I think a lot of people are familiar with our historical background, but what the BioBlitz did, I think, for some people was highlight what we have in terms of our flora and fauna. 
we have tremendous assets uh, terrestrially and in the marine environment. And what was great about this BioBlitz is we were able to capture a lot of that. So spent a lot of the daytime hours on land observing insects and birds and numerous uh, species of plants. But then at night, when the tide was right, we were able to get into the inner tidal with some fantastic experts and really document a lot of the diverse uh, life we find in our inner tidal zone. And I think in terms of the festival itself, um, where we had all the exhibitors come out, uh, super successful as well. Um, our first nature hike had 150 people on it, um, so that was super cool. A lot of people really enjoyed having the scientists come out and talk um, and interact with their science directly. Uh, There's a lot of hands-on components. Um, we were able to bus 350 students out from the uh, surrounding uh, schools. Now let's talk highlights or your favorite parts of the day. Mm, highlights. That's a, there's so many highlights, but I think the biggest highlight um, was we actually had posted some of the kids that came, some of their work um, at Cabrillo, and their faces when they saw it, they were just so stoked that this is like their national park and they had contributed and that people, like the community was able to see like what they had done um, and that we had actually used it. And I think that was just, it was awesome. For me, it was probably the intertidal exploration. The tide was somewhere around 4 a.m., so I stayed up all night. I'd, I just went, I did a couple of walking transects looking for nocturnal mammals and just rolled into the intertidal at 4 a.m. And that was great because we had some fantastic experts that Alex brought in, um, but it was just really nice. It was quiet. The sun was rising. The intertidal is one of my favorite habitats anyway. And just to be able to get out there with, with some great volunteers as well and, and share with them the opportunity to be out at that time of the day and observe the wonderful habitat that is the inner title. For me, that, that was just a highlight of everything. So now that this event is done and you know we're moving forward as a national park, what are the implications of creating a big event like this? I mean, what do you do next? And I think that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing because um, a lot of students will never be able to make it out to the park, whether that be because of logistics or um, what have you. And so the cool part is you can do this anywhere. You can mm -hmm. do it in your own backyard. You can do it in the schoolyard. Um, recently, we just did a couple of mini blitzes, as we called them, um, in a local park by some of the schools. And it's super powerful because the kids are empowered to like go explore just in their own backyard. Yeah, what I think is great is that it helps the park establish relationships with researchers who may have come out here but it was 10 years ago or may have never been here. It, it allows us access to a whole suite of researchers for this project and future projects. So yeah, to me that is actually a really great point and a great benefit to the park. If we walk away and like 10, 10 kids that day start using INAT or you know 10, 10 visitors, that's great, right? But we have a chance to interact with 30 of the best scientists from San Diego County. Um, and that, that's a huge benefit for, the park, benefit for the park now and going forward. And I think it allows us as a park to be a platform um, of communicating science to the public. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes these researchers are uh, stuck in their labs and are not given the opportunity to interact with the public um, in this way. And so this kind of breaks down those barriers and it's not, not only good for the scientists mm -hmm. to learn how to speak uh, to the public, but also good for the public to see that these are normal people. 
Um, they're not just stuck in a lab with their white coats. Mm-hmm. Um, they're cool and interesting and weird, and it's <laughs> awesome. And they study cool, squishy things. And so I think it, uh, it, it breaks down barriers, for sure. And that's really the teaching moment, where you're introducing people to not only the app, but the park and the diversity within the park and the potential for them to take this further in their own lives, whether it be volunteering for us. And you know, maybe someone says, I love this. I love doing this. How do I get out in the field with those scientists? They can sign up as a volunteer with us and then join join that group. Um, so yeah, really that that aspect of the BioBlitz is is where we're kind of recruiting and introducing people to you know, what we do as scientists here every day in the park. A lot of at least kids that I work with, I think they're they're so focused on oh we're we have this that we have to fix. We have this that we have to fix. So many things that we have to fix. And that's like the only science they're keyed into when we're losing that sense of exploration. Mm-hmm. We're losing the original like mm-hmm. bio blitzers, the citizen science, the naturalists who used to go out and just explore, just to explore and find mm-hmm. cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think this day and having these events allow them the freedom to just go out mm-hmm. and just look at nature and be stand in awe of it. Um, I mean, as a scientist, we get that, but I don't. I think that's being lost in uh, where we're just putting it on this next generation. So you gotta fix what we messed up, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that starts first though by exploring what we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I think yeah, it's, it's super important. I mean, we we have these heroes. Like Sylvia Earle, Jacques Cousteau—I mean, those are my marine heroes. But um, E.O. Wilson, right? Um, and I, I think we kind of lost that sense of excitement and adventure. And we're like, oh well, there's nothing else to explore. We've reached it all. We've gone to the moon. Mm-hmm. We've done all mm-hmm. this. Um, there's no what, what else is left. Mm-hmm. We've reached. We found all these cool places already. Um, and I think we we just need to look closer um, and kind of shift that frame of thinking back to no the sky is really the limit like mm-hmm. you can go anywhere you want events like the BioBlitz have the ability to bring people together and through this technology we're able to share and rekindle the idea of exploration i mean for the me the importance of the BioBlitz um is getting people connected not only to the resources, but with each other. It's a community event, um, and we're all kind of rallying around the same cause. Um, it's just really cool, and it gets the kids engaged in this weird way. Like, they um, normally you can't, like, get them away from their cell phones, but now you're using their cell phones as a tool to go explore the natural environment. They, they all work together. There's, like, this teamwork aspect, and we're, like, all have the same common uh, goal. Um, so I, I really like the the adventure aspect and also like just the bringing the community together. I think it's just a super powerful event. Yeah, I agree with Alex. I think the most powerful part of it is that it's, it brings people to a park or to any open space and encourages them to explore and document diversity. And I think that lesson, more than the number of observations made or the number of species discovered, is more important. Just getting people connected to nature again. But from a, from a scientific and management standpoint, I'm really happy with it because it's, it, it presents sort of a baseline of, of data that we now can reflect back on. And we won't do it at this scale every year, but maybe every 10 years we could do something like this. And 
And to me, like, if you keep doing that over, you know, several decades, it'll become a really valuable data set. Um, so for me, to make that kind of contribution is also important. You know, most people think that when you want to manage an ecologically sensitive area, you're trying to move back in time, trying to get back to the way it was. But that's not really the way it works. Right. We may never go back, but we can encourage people to preserve what is left and that going forward, our goal is to never go lower than we are now. Always push forward. So I think that's, you know, it's a difference. You're right. We'll never go back to what it was in, you know, 1542 when Cabrillo landed here. But we can we can make this place as good or better in the future. And, you know, we do this using technology, really. I'd like to thank the National Park Service, Cabrillo National Monument, Alex Warnicke, Keith Lombardo, the entire natural resources team for all the work they did on this event and helping me out with this episode. Also, to all the researchers that came out on the BioBlitz Day, everyone I've talked to said they had a great time. Uh, it was a great event. It was a super cool thing to be out at Cabrillo for 24 hours. So we started this episode off with interviews with volunteers from the actual BioBlitz event. I'd like to thank them for talking with us and sharing their passion of national parks and biodiversity. We're going to finish this episode up with an interview with one of the volunteers that came out to the event. Uh, this is Dr. Joel Pagel, but uh, we know him as Jeep. My name is Dr. Jeep Pagel. I work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the National Raptor Program. I am a raptor ecologist. I came to the BioBlitz because my friends who work in the National Park Service asked me to come here and because we have learned a lot of information about peregrine falcons that nest on Cabrillo National Monument. Biological diversity means to me that every single thing that's on the planet that is alive is important. Biological diversity is something that is important not only to our survival as humans, but also because every single species is important just as a species. My favorite national park, or the thing that I like about national parks, is twofold. One, I have many favorite national parks. The wilder, the better. The places that have large, open expanses of habitat are the places that I really like to be the most. But the thing that I like most about the National Park Service is that we all own it. It's all our property. It's all our area and in our interest to preserve as it is so that future generations can have the same experience that we may have in national parks. <laughs>